we have reached the point in our study of the Gospels where we have reached the so-called Sermon on the Mount. And last week we went into the background of it. I'll just briefly summarize. Uh, it's not really a sermon at all. One modern translation titles it The Great Instruction, which is a far more accurate title, I would say. It is a set of instructions to the initiates. In Matthew, uh, it follows along after uh, the narrative of him having called his first four disciples. In Luke, which has an alternative version, which we will go into somewhat in a few minutes, uh, it takes place immediately after all of the disciples, that is, the first twelve, the main twelve initiates of Jesus, are named. Um, so in both cases, the placement implies that, but it's very clear. As we saw last week, he escaped from the multitudes who were after him to heal them and do all sorts of things. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, not the multitudes. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and I read now the first section of the sermon. I don't know how much we will actually be able to discuss today. Uh, maybe all of it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And I just, by way of comparison, and to show some of the problems that come up, uh, I want to read the first section of the uh comparable sermon or instruction in the Gospel of Luke, which, uh, interestingly enough, specifically takes place in the plain. In other words, some people have referred to this as the Sermon in the Plain, as distinguished from the Sermon on the Mount, although if you read it through, it's very clear that it's a shorter version of the same basic uh, set of instructions. And he came down with them and stood in the plain in the company of his disciples. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, 
Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from your company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. That's the comparable section, and as you can see, there are some rather large differences, uh, quite large in, in implication-wise in some cases. But there's been a lot of speculation among scholars as to why these two versions exist, how they can be so similar in some ways and so far apart in others. I think the explanation is simple enough, and some of the scholars have hit on it. And that is that Luke's version is um, perhaps an original version uh, in which um, it is not explained as fully as in Matthew's. In Matthew, we have a more, you might say, corrected or fully explained version. Let's take it line by line, and I think we can see. Luke's version, however, is a very important aid to understanding Matthew's, I think, as we will see as we go on. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this verse, I think, is often misunderstood. I used to misunderstand it. When I was at Gordon College in Boston studying to be a minister, I used to get a lot of laughs by saying that this was the only verse in the Bible that I lived up to, because uh, meaning that I was spiritually poor. Of course, that's not the meaning at all. And everyone laughed, everyone understood that, but there was a lot of uneasiness because I don't think any of us really, really quite got what was meant. But Luke's version makes it very clear because he says, Blessed are ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And Matthew says, well, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is to say, those who are as though, who live in the world as though they were poor, whose attitude toward the world is that of a poor man. And what is that attitude? And that brings us to the whole point of this introductory section of the sermon which we went into last week, mentioned briefly rather, and that is that this first part is not a series of commandments to be followed, but rather an explanation of the conditions that have to be met before the commandments can be followed. In other words, this is the way we have to be in order to receive grace. If we are not, if these are not our attitudes, then we cannot be blessed. And the word blessed is translated in the modern versions as either fortunate or happy. One version says, how happy are the poor in spirit. Another version says, fortunate are the poor in spirit, example. Uh, so they are the ones who are the gainers, you might say, or the winners, because they are, they are able to have this attitude within themselves which enables them to receive grace. So what is the attitude of a poor man? 
And how does it differ from the attitude of a rich man? I think um, it's not difficult to uh, see that a poor man is someone who is very well aware of his own helplessness. He knows that he is at the mercy of the universe. He knows that he cannot control things. He understands very well that he is not the doer in any real sense. He understands this because the evidence of it is around him every day. A rich man, on the other hand, is often under the illusion that he has got great power. And uh, we, this is just a common sense observation. Uh, the richer we are, and rich, of course, can mean not just money, but also position, uh, influence over people, that sort of thing. The more of that we have, the more we fall deeper into the delusion that we can do, that we are in control. And this is why, for example, when the stock market crashed in 1929, uh, people jumped out of windows for no more reason than that they became like 80, 80 to 90 percent of the world's population. Because when that delusion went, it was a very, very painful thing. And they could not stand it. So if we don't have this sense of our own helplessness in the face of the universe, you see, we are not going to be open to uh, receiving from someone who is, who is in control. We will not be able to understand that we need help. We think that we can do everything ourselves. Now, we can be, Matthew's, and we can say that this represents a clarification that Jesus himself made, which is my view, um, by emphasizing that, the, that it's an inner requirement. He does not, of course, rule out that rich men can feel this way. Um, we know that, in fact, they can. There are records in the Gospels themselves. But it's important to realize that the fact remains that the first version of this was Blessed are you poor people, okay? Because you already have the attitude that will lead you to the kingdom of God. It is easier. The less possessions we have, the easier it is to understand this. The more we have, the more the illusion is. And it is no part of the path to emphasize um, material well-being at the expense of this. Most masters, with some exceptions, but most masters, even if they started out wealthy, did give all or most of their wealth away, including Sanchi, who, we know, gave away his inheritance to an illegitimate boy in his village, although he kept enough so that he would never be a burden on anyone. Uh, Tulsi Sahib was the heir to a throne, and he renounced the whole thing. And Dharamdas, our friend from the Anurag Saga, that we know so well, uh, he was one of the richest men in India. There's a reference in the Anurag Saga to the fact that he gave his wealth away. And he did. There are several different stories. One of them is that Kabir arranged it so that he spent his whole money trying to find him after he had appeared to him once and then disappeared. And Dharamdas's efforts to find him, he spent his entire fortune. And only after it was gone did Kabir turn up. And that's a well-known fact uh, in the Sattvah tradition that Dharamdas... Uh, was one of the wealthiest men in India, but gave his entire fortune away. We know that at another place in the Gospels, Jesus demands of the so-called rich young ruler that he give away everything to the poor and follow him. And the man couldn't do that. Now, he doesn't demand that of everyone. And it is uh, 
there are instances in the Gospels of people who are wealthy being accepted by Jesus as is. And of course, there are plenty of instances in the lives of the modern masters too. But there is always this ambivalence in that it's harder for them. The more possession, the more power, the more influence, the more anything like that that we have, the harder it is to get the true perspective. And in that sense, poor people are lucky. And that is why that 95% of any master's disciples have been of the poor and on a worldwide, from a worldwide point of view, almost always of the poorest of the poor. The people who are the absolute bottom by uh, ordinary social standards. This is true in the Gospel also, as it makes very plain. So elsewhere, Jesus said to you, everyone knows this famous quote, is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And one time, in a very interesting session that was later published under the name No New Faith Mind That, in uh, Tustin, California, December 63, occasion on which I was personally present, uh, people who, there are a number of wealthy disciples there on that occasion, and when someone suggested to Master that a lot of people uh, had suggested that they should take a vow of poverty, first he answered by quoting this line, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then, after it was made plain to him that it was at other people's suggestions that they were told what to do, then the master laughed and said that the world is full of hypocrites. Why spoil the show? And he indicated that they, that, you know, you have to reach a high degree of development before you can give your wealth away and have it mean anything. Otherwise, you would just wish you had it. And that is, you're just as attached to it that way. But still, it remains, the thing remains that it is difficult. So, it's an important point, and we have to at least approach the universe from this point of view. Not, I am a doer, I can control things, I have power, I am this, I am that. No, it's rather a sense, what you might call existential hopelessness. As far as existence goes, okay, we are nothing. There is hope but it doesn't come from our own abilities. And I think that most of us will understand that very well. Anyway, that is the. these are the first blessed people, the ones who have this understanding of their helplessness in the face of the, of the overpowering might of the universe, one might say. Um, the emphasis that in the Sukmani, for example, those of us who have been following it in the magazines, uh, the last few issues, the discourses have been very much emphasizing the doership of God and the helplessness of man. Sometimes this can be disturbing because we think, uh, well, if, if, if God is the only doer and I don't do anything, then I'm not responsible for anything. I can do anything I want. Well, that's only half the story. Uh, there is a, the path is full of paradoxes, as we've often said, and, uh, it's also true that we are responsible for that which we do, nonetheless. But, at the same time, it's important, the point has to be driven home over and over again, that in the ultimate sense, God is the only doer, and we have no power. 
And it's only when we realize that, that we can open ourselves to His grace. We must have that realization. We must be humbled. Some of the modern translations translate poor as humble. Happy are the humble in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we could think, well, I thought we were supposed to go jolly. What is this? The bumper stickers all say, go jolly. And Master Kripa used to say that. Yes, that's true. Again, there's paradox. But the point is that it's only if we're first mourning. You see, again, it's a question of understanding our position. First, we have to mourn. Because first, we have to understand that uh, the true state of affairs. Then, once we have taken help, you see, once we have grasped exactly where we stand, then, and also in this sermon too, later on, the beautiful section which we will get to in due course about not worrying. You know, that's the meaning of Gojali. That uh, once we have taken taken the hand of the Master, okay, and He is leading us, and uh, we are in His care, then who are we to worry? That's also another form of doing. You see, another form of trying to usurp our power away from He who has it. Now then we have to just... Um, go jolly with him, you know, and let him lead us in that way. But before we reach that point, we have to understand our true position. Kabir quotes, or rather, Sanchi and Master Kapal and all the modern masters have quoted Kabir's famous thing, that I saw that the whole world was happy except for Kabir. He was unhappy. And then we read that if you, the only ones who are happy are those who are doing the uh, devotion of Nam. Obviously, two kinds of happy are men. And Kabir is speaking here, this is the same point he is making, that you have to realize, you have to weep, and realize your true state of affairs, your helplessness, and it has to come home to you so that you beg and cry and mourn for it before the grace of God can descend. And this is a psychological and theological reality. Master Kripal Singh has written about how before he started seeing silencing within, he used to cry so much that um, his papers were blotted in his office. He would ruin the papers that he was working on. And people thought that they didn't know what was wrong. And he couldn't explain to anyone that he was so conscious of that lacking of God within him uh, that he couldn't help it. The tears just overflowed. And Sanchi has said the same things especially in connection with sleeping, that he could not sleep because he was so aware of that lacking. What is called a ruling passion, which is actually dealt with more a little way further down, but does not mean that we shouldn't go jolly once we have grasped the true state of affairs. Then, no, then we must. We must not worry. It's not our business to worry after that. It's in the Tibetan tradition it is said that Marpa, the translator, who was the guru of Milarepa, was once walking in the mountains and he saw a woman weeping very bitterly. And he said uh, to her, there's only one thing to weep for. And that is that all human beings have the power within them to become Buddhas and they don't know it. If you weep for that, weep forever. Otherwise, there is nothing to weep for. And that is the sense that's the, the point of this verse also. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
in the oldest manuscripts, this verse comes right after, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's a quote from Psalm 37. And most scholars now think that it's simply an explanation of the first one, that the meek are not differentiated from the poor in spirit. Um, but rather it's a further explanation of it. I'm going to read you the section of Psalm 37 that is relevant because it's a beautiful psalm and it shows how Jesus used the Hebrew Scriptures at his command, the writings of the masters of the past, uh, how he was unerringly able to select out of as w- which, out of the Scripture, which as we have seen is a, um, a meeting of positive and negative, both unerringly picked out the positive and used it. And this also uh, casts some light on everything that we have been saying too. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. The evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So it's a very beautiful uh, further enlightenment on that particular subject. And of course, also, the paradox throughout the Gospel, throughout the teachings of all the Masters, is that the last shall be first and the first last. That often, those who appear to be the losers are in fact the winners. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Here the reference is to the ruling passion. You know, we've got to want it so bad that it's just as though we were starving and wanted food or desperately thirsty and wanted water. If we want it like that, then we will be filled, definitely. Master Kripal used to tell the story of the man who went to a guru who was bathing in a river. And the guru made him come right down into the river and talk to him. And he said that he wanted, he said he wanted it pretty bad. And the guru took his head and pushed it down into the water and held it there for a long time. And he left it up. The guy was gasping for breath. And he said, well, when you want it as bad as you wanted air right then, then you'll get it. And he also told the story of Namdev and the idol, how in Namdev, who of course became a master, eventually was a little boy, his grandfather used to worship the idol every morning. He went into the temple and he took milk and he always came back with the milk pitcher empty. And the one day his grandfather was sick and Namdev had to do it. He knew how to do the ritual. What he did not know was that his grandfather used to drink the milk himself after offering it. So that um, 
Now they expected that the god would appear and drink the milk. So he offered the ritual and nothing happened. He couldn't understand it. He thought he had done something wrong. He did it again. Still nothing happened. So he uh, pulled out a knife and he said, and he meant it, that he didn't know it was wrong, why his offering was being refused. But if uh, God did not want to drink that milk, um, he was going to kill himself. And God appeared and drank the milk. So this is the... It's a real thing and we have to really care. And that's the point of this. When we feel like that, when we hunger and thirst after righteousness, in the same way that we hunger and thirst after food and drink when we get hungry and thirsty, we don't let anything stand in the way of our eating. We can possibly help it. At least I've never met anybody yet. I never do anyway. And uh, it's the same. We have to feel exactly the same way. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This is, of course, one of the points that is expanded later in the, in the Sermon on the Mount and is a central point of the, of the gospel, I would say. William Blake considered that the essence of Christianity was the forgiveness of sins. And had he known about the existence of Saint Not per se, he would have expanded the term to include you would have said Sankmat, because that is that is the essence of the teachings of the true masters, is the forgiveness of sins. And because of that, if we also forgive sins of those with whom we come in contact, if we are merciful on them the way that the masters are merciful on us, then we are imitating them in the right way, not in the wrong way, we are putting ourselves in a position to receive that which they want to give us. If we are not doing that, if we are judging others, then we are cutting off the very channel with which we can obtain mercy. It's a very important point. In another place, Blake said, mutual forgiveness of each vice, such are the gates of paradise. It's a very beautiful couplet, I think. very true one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Master Kupal used to quote this a lot. And it has several applications. But the main one, the base one, means the same idea as when he used to say, how many hearts does anyone have? If you have one heart, then that's good. It's a question of being pure. The ultimate root meaning of pure is to be unalloyed. You know, to be one thing, single-minded, undivided, which is the real meaning, as Master says in the Crown of Life, of individual, an undivided entity. And if we are pure in heart in this way, which means obviously be, being able to collect our attention at the eye focus because there is nothing standing in our way, there would be no reason not to be, we become one, in other words, then we will definitely see God. That's the promise. It's also used as an, often is used to mean chaste. And the reason for that is that uh, sexual desires, sensual desires in general, are usually the most obvious and the biggest obstacles to being single-minded in this way. For many people, that's true. And that is why it is sometimes masters have quoted, it, quoted this in both contexts. And both are true. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. 
here again there's a double meaning. Peacemakers, first of all, means those who make peace within their own selves. If we don't have peace within our own selves, how can we um, expect to bring peace to anyone else? The people will get whatever we have, and no matter what we say, they will have it. That is why it is a mistake, a great mistake, to take this particular instruction as a political manifesto. You know, it's not at all that. It is a, for individuals, the individuals who have committed themselves to finding God in their lifetime, and who want to go all the way. And for those who do, Jesus is saying, alright, this is what is required. So, those people who work at making peace within themselves, then they do in fact become peacemakers because they have made peace and they are also in a position to spread peace to the world around them and they will be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad but great is your reward in heaven. So persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And Luke adds, as we have seen, you know, woe unto those of you when everyone speaks well of you. But that's exactly what they did to the false prophets. There is, there is a sort of a, a corollary. It's very difficult. The masters say in some of their hymns that if you follow Nam to the utmost, you will have, you know, you will be spoken well of both in earth and on earth and in heaven. And that's true to some extent. We know that the masters have often been spoken well of in a way on earth, but they have almost always been persecuted and tortured also. And if not physically, at least verbally. And uh, the tradition of, of the truer and the more good you are, the harder time you have in some ways is a very strong one and uh, we should realize that if we care about walking in the footsteps of uh, those whom we love and revere and who we think of live worthwhile lives then this is probably going to happen that we are going to be misunderstood people are going to misread and misunderstand uh, for their own sake what uh, we do and we're going to have a tough time and sometimes even our own brothers and sisters are going to do that. And sometimes we may be in the wrong. Also, um, in which case, as Sanchi has often said, uh, we should be, we should profit from it. But whether or not, uh, the persecution itself, the misunderstanding itself is very clear here and it is very clear in the writings of many of the modern masters too that uh, our attitude to it should be one of happiness because this is this means that we are going to get um, compensated you know this is a sign it's like it's not that because we are being persecuted we are good people but it just means that uh, there is a certain balance if we get a lot of our karma now a lot of the fruits of our of our karma now we don't get it later that works both ways if it's all good that we get now well unless we have been awfully saintly for hundreds of lifetimes, you know, we probably don't have that much more ahead, and vice versa. 
So, at least we know that we are in the tradition. We are following in the footsteps of the saints. And we should be happy. And the saints have very often not been recognized when they were on earth and neither have their disciples. And that was especially true, as we know, of Jesus. And he was acutely aware of this and often referred to it, as has Sanchi. We are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Scholars have puzzled over this because uh, they get hung up in the naturalistic implications of the parable. That is, the salt doesn't ever lose its savor, so that it doesn't seem to be a, a realistic uh, image. But that's the point, that uh, the initiates, the disciples of the living master, are meant to give flavor to the physical world, just as salt is meant to give flavor to our food. The salt can't lose its flavor, but if it did, what a useless bunch of business it would be. And we may conclude from that that the disciples are not supposed to lose their savor either. We know, <coughs> however, from bitter experience, much of it with our own selves, that they often do. And we should not be surprised uh, if we have a hard time uh, if we do. Master Kripal used to say there are good people everywhere but you people are meant to be good people. You know, it is our job. The next verse explains it further. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Not our words, you understand, not what we say, not the image that we ourselves set up to project to others. We are spiritual person, meditator, and uh, this and that. No, Sanchi says people should not even necessarily know that you are meditating. But it means that in our life, the savor, okay, the salt, which we have gotten from the Master, that has to impinge on others' lives. It has to mean something to them so that they are forced to think what what is different here. It should be like that. If it isn't, then we are not fully living up to what the Master expects of us. And uh, in our dealings with others, in our dealings with our brothers and sisters, um, we should be inspiring to them and not pulling them down. And in our dealings with people who are not yet initiated, uh, without ever talking about the path or even um, necessarily indicating that we are on a path, the, the quality of the master should shine through. And that may seem a hard thing to do, but the point is that the, in the pages that follow, Jesus more or less explains what has to be done for that to happen. In other words, the, the rest of the sermon following this introductory section can be explained as a, as a follow-through or further explanation of this opening section. But of course what he doesn't say here, but is implied is that it is through, although it's it's mentioned in this sermon, not a great deal, but it is mentioned, that uh, it is through the constant coming in contact with the Master, either physically or in meditation, that enables us to do all this stuff. 
um, there's been a lot of controversy, scholarly also among theologians and, and religious people generally, as to the purpose of this sermon, how it fits into the Bible as a whole. Is it a new law, a uh, substitute for the law of Moses? Later on, uh, Jesus clarifies this, and we'll go into this next week. But other people think that it's he's setting up a standard that's so high that no one can do it in order to bring home to us how wretched we are by explaining that this is what is required and then showing, and then not showing, but we know from our experience that no one can do it. Uh, this means that we will have to be fully dependent on the grace of God. There is some truth in both of those, maybe. Um, but I think, and it seems self-evident to me, that this is, if you love me, keep my commandments, these are the commandments that we will make an effort to keep because of our love for him, and in so doing, we will be strengthening our remembrance. As Master Kapal used to say about the diary, if you keep the diary at night, who are you going to remember? You're going to remember the one who asked you to keep it. And when you are keeping it, you are saying something to him. And this, these are the same things that are summarized on the diary under the five headings, are the things that are dealt with in this particular instruction. And by making efforts in this direction, the disciple remembers the master who asked him to do it, and he thereupon grows. Also, his efforts to do it increase his capacity. And we know that the effort to live the life that the master wants us to live is one wing of the bird. Meditation is the other wing. So, there's a lot in these things, and I know that we're only perhaps skimming the surface of what might be said. But we will continue with the sermon, or the instruction, whatever we want to call it, next week, and get into some specific um, commandments, most of which do relate back to the first ten so-called Beatitudes that we read today. <coughs>